Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1993, director Steven Spielberg and star Sam Neill gave the world an epic encounter with monsters stomping right out of the history books. In 2022, one of our favorite brands kicks it up a notch. The film is Jurassic Park. The whiskey is Barrel Seagrass 16 Year. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. It's freaking time, Brad G. (laughs) I'm so excited. I'm bouncing up and down in my chair right now because I have been waiting five plus seasons to talk about my favorite movie of all time, Jurassic Park. Oh, you you like this movie? No. (laughs) This is a big spoiler alert. Uh, I hate this movie now. I changed my tune. Give it about a, a six, like uh, E.T.? Yeah. I mean, like tops, you know? To- yeah. They tried. Uh, that's, its, that's its ceiling. You know, it's like you tried. A for effort. <laughs> Bob, I'm curious. I want to hear a little more of your story behind Jurassic Park, because this is obviously a movie that means a lot to you. So, So what is it? Like, how old were you when you first saw this? Please don't say three years old, but- what What is it about this movie that has just such personal value for you? So here's the thing with Jurassic Park. When I say that it's my favorite movie, a lot of it is because it's one of the first movies I remember seeing. So like it's not far off saying that I was like three years old watching this movie. When I was a little kid, as with most 90s kids, I became absolutely obsessed with dinosaurs uh, to the point where like I could I could name them all. I could talk about them all. Uh, I used to get uh, highlights magazines. You remember those from like the doctor's office when you were a kid? Oh, heck yeah, dude. There was a guy in there named Dino Don. He was a real paleontologist and you could write in and ask him questions. <laughs> and I got a question published in Dino Don one month when I was a kid. It was a big deal for ha- me. Do you still have that somewhere? I don't. I don't. But I remember like I made it into Dino Don and I thought that I had arrived. So, uh, Jurassic Park was a big deal for me. And I think because my parents were very irresponsible with what they let me watch as a kid, it was like, oh, he likes dinosaurs. Let's watch the highest grossing movie of all time, which happens to be about dinosaurs. So like the scariness of the movie never really hit me as a kid because I don't I think I was too young to understand how scary it is in in a weird like uh, calculus there. And watching it now, I'm like, why the hell did my parents let me watch this when I was a little kid? But I remember like my mom's 40th birthday. My dad got a big surprise thing for her. They deliver. It was one of those things where they like set it up in the yard. It was like a big yard sign. And uh, I remember we were watching Jurassic Park when the big reveal happened outside. And so that was 97. So I was like four years old at the time. So like Jurassic Park has just been in my life forever. 
And I think the reason that I would still call it my favorite movie is because I have seen it countless, like legitimately countless times. And even though there are little tiny things about it that I will nitpick now, it has still held up remarkably well for having been watched by me, you know, 200 times. Yeah, Bob, I I think that there are some incredible movies out there that when they hit at the right moment, it just means everything to you as a kid. And for me, it was Star Wars. Mm -hmm. You know, like I talked about this in the past that I was like seven or eight years old and we were watching it on my friend's projector and there's just this huge crowd of people watching it in this basement all packed in tight and Darth Vader comes walking over the dead stormtroopers, and it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I, you know, Jurassic Park has a few reveals kind of like that. So I, I can understand how young Robert, little Bobby, was just out of his mind with how cool this movie had to be. What's your history with Jurassic Park? You know, I don't think I saw it until I was a little bit older, probably... Man, I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. I think it probably had to be like my early teens, like 12 to 14 wow. years old. Okay. Um, so I, de- I didn't watch it as a kid, but I, I do remember having seen it like once I was in high school. So at, at some point in there, I watched it. I always am just flabbergasted that my parents let me see uh, The Fellowship of the Ring in 2001 because that came <laughs> out in December of 01, which yeah. means I had literally just turned 11. Mm-hmm. And so I I don't know how I saw that, uh, but Jurassic Park having come out when I was three, I, I can understand why they didn't take me you know to it in in uh, in 1993. Jurassic Park is one of those films that I mean it's kind of obvious when I say this because it was the highest grossing film of all time for a few years until Titanic took the crown. It's one of those movies that is just assumed you've seen. Like I don't know a person that has not seen Jurassic Park. And I think there are a few kind of cultural touchstones there in the mid 90s that everybody who is a certain age or older has seen. And Jurassic Park kind of transcends that to the point where most young people I know, like if you've hit 15 and you have not seen Jurassic Park, I'm still shocked to hear that. And it's also one of those movies where the material is very dark and violent. And yet (laughs) it's one of the few films that I think all of our parents gave us a pass on. Like, I remember when The Matrix came out in 99, I didn't go see that in the theater because it was like, I guess it was just something my dad wasn't interested in seeing. But there were so many kids at my school that were like, yeah, it was my first rated R movie. My parents felt like I should go see this as my first rated R movie. You know, The Sixth Sense, I think, kind of had that phenomenon to it as well, where we probably shouldn't be taking little kids to see this, but also we're going to give it a pass this time. And Jurassic Park kind of checks both of those boxes where everyone saw it. And as a result of everyone seeing it, a lot of us saw it probably too young. Well, it was also in the theaters for like freaking ever, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I just read an article today where it said that by October of 94, so over a year after it had come out, it was still playing on 100 screens in the United States. That is like absolutely mind boggling. Top Gun has been out for a little over two months at the point we're recording this. And we're talking about like, wow, the legs on this thing are incredible. Like it keeps peaking at at every major holiday and people want to see Top Gun. If Top Gun can sustain this for another 14 months, I will be adequately (laughs) impressed, you know? Yeah, I mean, the the 
reality of cinema has just changed so, so much. But I, I'll just take a minute here to comment. Bro, Top Gun was freaking amazing. It was so good. It was, it, so it was good. just just absolutely one of the most fun movies I've seen in theaters in a spectacularly long time. And the thing about it, and I'm going to connect it back to Jurassic Park, is that there are certain movies that just make you feel the sheer joy of cinema. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, yes, there's yep. nothing like when you go to the theater and the movie hits in a way that none of the MCU movies did this for me. And none of the Star Wars, the new Star Wars movies did this for me as much as I liked one of those films. Like it, <laughs> there's something about Top Gun where you're seeing a, a ton of practical effects happening and it's just such a Hollywood movie and it freaking hits. And you're like, this is an experience I have only had a few times in my life watching a movie in the theater. It's like yep. Jurassic Park, you know, Titanic did that for me. Uh, you know, I, I've had a few in my like teens and 20s and Top Gun kind of enters that conversation. But Jurassic Park is one of those movies. Well, hey, as we get into talking about Jurassic Park, we do want to say whether it's your first time listening to the show or you're a longtime listener, consider joining us on our Patreon. We have memberships at the three five and seven dollar a month tiers at every tier you get tons of bonus content you get access to a special discord server that we are on every day interacting with our patrons you can find us at patreon.com slash film whiskey i will say you asked me for my history on jurassic park i have actually seen jurassic park in theaters did you go see the re-release when they put it out in 3d i did dude i I did too it was freaking great And not only that, but I took my now wife to see it before we were even like dating or anything. And afterwards, one of my friends, we were all out at Applebee's. He leaned over and he goes, hey, bro, you going to hit that? (laughs) (laughs) And spoiler alert, you would hit that. I I would. (laughs) You would go on. I have a child with her now. To repeatedly hit that. All right, Brad. (laughs) We are way off track. Let's talk about this movie. And in order to do that, we have to get into the segment that we call Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Thank goodness this was not your first time seeing Jurassic Park. But for those people out there who may have been living under a rock for the past 29 years, can you spend 60 seconds in a very spoiler-filled fashion breaking down the plot of Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park is a film about a paleontologist and a paleobotanist who travel to an island uh, by their benefactor who has found a way to, well, he finds a way to finance scientists who find a way uh, on how to clone dinosaurs, and they're going to turn it into a massive amusement park. Uh, This amusement park is called, fittingly, Jurassic Park. They bring in uh, Dr. Grant and Ellie Sattler and Ian Malcolm, a mathematician uh, who studies chaos theory, to basically give approval to the park uh, before it can open to the public. Everything goes wrong. Dr. Grant gets separated. He's hanging out with these kids that are the park owner's grandkids, and they're attacked by a T-Rex, and there's velociraptors everywhere. And Bob knows that this is the point where Brad explains goes off the rails because wild stuff just starts happening. But by the end of the film, they are able to escape safely, uh, ascending on the helicopter and heading off the island. Boom. Jurassic Park. 
See, that's the thing is like the movie isn't really about almost anything that I just talked about. No. Those are the things that happened. There are like themes in the movie that happen. But at at its heart. What's a theme, Bob? (laughs) What is that? But at its heart, (laughs) this movie is it's a survival movie. It's a monster movie. Bad things are going to eat you. Can you get away from the bad things? Like that's Mm -hmm. the that's the movie. And it is compelling as hell. Yeah. Well, I think that the the reason it's compelling as hell is because there are just incredible layers of subtext throughout the entire movie Mm -hmm. that are pointing to what Spielberg is trying to say, which is, hey, I'm becoming an adult now, you know, like Steven Spielberg himself and trying to start a family and I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) So this is me trying to work it out on screen. Yep. Spielberg once again exercising his inability to go to therapy by making just great <laughs> movies out of them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> probably probably his best one. I would argue this might be Spielberg's best movie, and this would this would probably be my hottest take ever because I mean everyone has a different Spielberg movie that they consider the best. And and I will say, Brad, like, is this a perfect movie? Would I change nothing about this movie? Probably not. Like, there are little tiny things I would tweak about this movie. But at the end of the day, I think this is Spielberg's most perfectly made movie. And just like Jaws, there is so much kind of providence happening behind the scenes to make this movie come out the way that it did. We could go in depth on it, but I think most people know a lot of the backstory. And if you were around in 93 and you went into the movie theater and saw that freaking Brachiosaurus for the first time, you learned what computers can do. And in the course of making this movie, Spielberg learned what computers could do. He he thought at first when they went into principal production that they would be mostly stop motion animation in the wide shots. And then in close ups, he would use his patented animatronics. And eventually ILM basically approached him and said, hey, we can do a lot of this via computers. And it became a very collaborative thing. But this was the first time that you really saw CGI characters in such a prominent role in a movie. and. The funny thing about it is that 30 years later, almost these special effects are still incredibly effective. Yeah, they look insanely better than half the CGI that you get nowadays. Yeah. And I part of that is because I think they have to do so many of the CGI shots from far away. And I think that the brain is almost tricked because of the use of animatronics mm-hmm. that are real. Therefore, they look real. That the close-ups with the animatronics, whenever they flip into the CGI, your brain, it's close enough that your brain doesn't have to distinguish. You just assume that real thing I just saw is still real. Yeah. And it's it's stunningly good. I don't know if Spielberg intended for that to happen, but after, you know, 30 years, 20, 29 years since it came out... Uh, I could, I think we can definitively say that this is the way to do CGI. Well, and that's the thing is there's no way Spielberg intended for this to happen because with the advancements that we've had in computer graphics in the last 30 years, this movie should look like a turd and it just absolutely doesn't. And I think it's such a testament to Spielberg and to the cinematographer, Dean Cundey. And for the first time in what will be many times on this episode, I want to talk about the Tyrannosaurus paddock sequence, which is. Probably the finest 10 minutes of horror movie making ever. It is just an impeccable sequence. Everything about it is perfect. I would change nothing. And for so many of the shots in that sequence, they're shooting the animatronic 
through glass. Like they're inside the Jeep and you're looking at the T-Rex from the kid's point of view or it's on the other side of the Jeep and shooting through two panes of glass. And so it's always kind of being obscured by the rain, by the glass. It's slightly distorted. So you never really get a chance to look at it and say, oh, that looks like a big fake rubber animatronic. And similarly, the CGI is obscured by rain and by shadow and, you know, mist coming off the ground. And I think because of that, they're not going into this insane level of detail that a lot of the more recent Jurassic World movies try to go into, which ultimately I think backfires when they go for hyper realism with these like CG models. It ends up getting into that uncanny valley where, you know, you're not watching a real velociraptor. And it's just it's so funny to me that this guy Spielberg has made two movies now in Jaws and this where like the star of the show, the dinosaurs and the shark (laughs) were malfunctioning and crappy. And somehow he produces two of the best movies of all time with those. Just absolute like gold medal award winning stunningly beautiful (laughs) animatronics. All right, man, let's talk briefly about the acting performances in this movie, because very famously, this movie didn't have any real bankable stars in it. Jeff Goldblum was probably the most famous person in this movie because he had starred in a number of films to this point. Laura Dern was known, but not super well known. Same with Sam Neill. He'd been in a lot of independent movies and some minor hits. Samuel L. Jackson hadn't really become famous. Richard Attenborough was known for a lot of his work as an actor, you know, way back in the 60s, like The Great Escape. So Spielberg really did make the dinosaurs the star of the show. And yet he kind of lucked into this incredible cast of people who knew exactly what to do. No one's over the top. I don't think anyone's really hamming it up in this movie, except maybe, you know, Wayne Knight. But that's his character. Like, no, 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 no. That's just Wayne Knight. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't even playing anybody. He just came in off the street. They were like, hey, get get in this Jeep with a dinosaur. We're going to call you Nedry, but but just be yourself. (laughs) We mean Wayne. (laughs) No, I want to hear what you think about the cast, though, because I think top to bottom, everyone's impeccable. I think that everyone plays their role incredibly well. And I think that my favorite part is that you get such a deep and engaging character arc for Sam Neill's character, Dr. Grant. You still see change happen in all of the other characters, and you see all of the other characters bounce off of one another and bounce off of Dr. Grant in such a way that it's just entertaining as hell. Like, there's so much good chemistry among this acting crew uh, the the only nitpick that I probably have is that I'm not a huge fan of Ariana Richards as Lex. And like Tim is great for like 80% of it and really, really cringe for about 20% of it. Oh, interesting. And so I'm I'm not a massive fan of Tim and Lex uh, in the movie. All right. I mean, if the child actors are the worst part of the movie, it's like, OK, you know, yeah. we, we expect that. No. Yeah. I mean, honestly, dude. Like Samuel Jackson comes in here and like is quietly one of the best actors in the movie. Oh, yeah. And he's and he's in it for maybe six or seven percent of the movie. (laughs) One thing that I really loved on this watch through, first of all, we'll talk about the script in a little bit. It's a perfect script. I have no notes. It's just fantastic. But the setup to get Grant and Sattler to the island is very, you know, it's like extortion. Like, do you want me to fund your dig? All right, come to my island. 
but he tells them so little about it that they and they don't even care. They're just going so that they can sign off so that they can get their money. And they they get to the island and that first reveal of the Brachiosaurus. I always forget that they have no idea that this park is making dinosaurs. No one has even told them like, hey, prepare yourself. There's going to be dinosaurs. It's a complete surprise. And it says a lot about Laura Dern and Sam Neill that they can do the face with their mouth hanging wide open and it doesn't come across as tacky or cheesy or over the top at all. And there is such a an earnest, sincere, childlike awe in that first scene where Grant's just pointing and he goes, it's it's a dinosaur. <laughs> You're like, yes, it is a dinosaur. I'm with you, man. And then the scene where the, the where the Triceratops is sick and Laura Dern is, is like cradling its head and saying like uh, calls her baby girl and you can see she's crying. It's it's so believable. They really anchor this film. Well, in the the opening scene when, you know, they see the dinosaur, if if you like paused it there and never finished the movie, I think it'd be easy to be like, oh, they're like very easily overacting here. But it's two things for me that really make that moment magical. A, it's the beauty of the CGI and, and the way that Spielberg keeps the humans so tiny in the frame compared to these Brachiosaurus that they they just appear so much larger than life. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's really incredible. But the other part of it, that might be just the most slappiest. Sorry. <laughs> That part, that scene has the musical score that slaps the most, Bob. It's so The good. moment where the dinosaurs come into view and, and Williams' score just kind of swells into this beautiful, just this lilting melody. I am just, every time I see it, the music just sweeps me away into a world where dinosaurs are freaking real. And it's yeah. it's just mind-bogglingly good. Let's have the John Williams conversation now. I freaking love this score. And I think one day we should do a bonus episode, Brad, where it's not our top five favorite John Williams scores, but it's our favorite, our top five favorite John Williams themes. Like, mm. so you could pick five themes from the same movie if you wanted to, because yeah. this movie has two of the best themes he's ever written. And what I really enjoyed doing on this watch through was trying to figure out when he used each one. So, you know, I, we're not going to get copyright stri- stricken, so we'll just hum the themes here. But, you know, the first one is the bum, 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 bum. And the other one is the one you're referring to, which is the first one. I noticed this time Williams uses it a lot when Hammond is showing off the park. And it happens a lot like when they're going on the tour of the park and you first see the gates opening and things like that. And there's a lot of pomp and circumstance to that. And I really love it because it it reflects that it could almost be music that was commissioned by the park to play as you ride around the park. Yes. It it very much reminds me of his Olympic theme, you know, the one that Mm -hmm. John Williams wrote. And there's a sense of like. It's almost like winking, like he knows it's kind of tacky and it's kind of like this is this is what you would hear at Disneyland when you go. And and, I mean, it works. It's beautiful. But then he brings in the other theme, the one that you're referring to. And that's the one that comes in 
when things are just naturally inspiring awe, when the dinosaurs are in control and when the dinosaurs are the things that are causing us to feel a certain emotion. It's not something that's being controlled by Hammond or manipulated out of you. It's the thing that naturally comes out of you. And I really love how he uses those two themes in different places to evoke different emotions. I think that the other part of the second theme that you were talking about is that there are only two specific points in the movie where you actually hear the entire theme. And do you know where those two parts are, Bob? Hmm. I do not. Well, the first is what we just mentioned when you first see the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. The second is at the very end of the movie when they are on the helicopter flying back. Ah, that's true. Yep. And we'll, we'll get into talking about the themes of the movie later, but the only time you hear that entire um, leitmotif, if you will, is when they are finding new life. Mm -hmm. It's when Dr. Allen and Ellie are finding the new life of dinosaurs but then it's at the very end of the film when they are finding new life for themselves. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I think that that's like brilliant that that is the only two times you hear the entire theme song. I love that. And the funny thing is, too, the last time you hear the first theme, the sort of bum, 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 is right when the Tyrannosaurus comes into frame and freaking demolishes those Velociraptors. <laughs> but the the beautiful thing about it happening there is is it's almost like an ironic use. I mean, it's very heroic. He comes in and saves the day for our heroes. But he's in the middle of the visitor center, and he's throwing the dead bodies of velociraptors into his own skeleton and demolishing what John Hammond has built as he stands and roars and the banner comes down. And it's this really ironic use of, we used this theme to indicate what John Hammond had built, and now we're playing it as it gets torn down to the ground. I just, I love the insertion of that theme there. Well, the the whole movie is about whether or not the forces of order or the forces of chaos will win, uh, with Jeff Globloom representing chaos and Hammond representing order. And so at the end of the film, what wins? Chaos, right? Natural selection, evolution. You never can really control what's going to happen. That's what wins, and that's who gets the theme song. I, I just think it's brilliant, man. All right, Brad, before we go to break, there is a lot I want to talk about. So let's let's pick a topic here that we can knock out in a couple minutes. Uh, I want to talk about Michael Crichton, the author of the book Jurassic Park that this was adapted from. And the thing that I've learned over the years, you know, Michael Crichton, very famous writer. Everyone in America was reading his books. This movie is wildly different than the book. And this is like the golden age of Hollywood adapting stuff from books and just kind of taking like the character names and the basic plot and then just running with it and saying based on a book by Michael Crichton and this one this one is in parts very faithful to the book and in parts just completely different. So my question to you is, uh, have you ever read anything by Michael Crichton? And specifically, are you familiar with anything that happens in the book version of Jurassic Park? The only Michael Crichton book I've ever read, I believe, is called Timeline. Oh, yeah. OK, it's it's a they made a movie. It's the one where they like take a time portal back yeah, yeah, to yeah. like 1366 or something. Uh, so that's the only Michael Crichton book I read. I really liked it a lot. And I do remember that that book ended in a super dark way that like the main bad guy got transported to a different part of history. 
And then, like, he realizes that it's like the Black Plague, and he starts coughing as the book closes. <laughs> oh, gosh. And it's, it's like, wildly dark. <laughs> uh, but I have not read Jurassic Park. It is on my, like, to-read list, though. It, it's something I've wanted to read for a while because I've heard it. It really is a phenomenal book. So the main difference is, and like I, I have not read that book in years and years and years. So I'm mostly going off of like the synopsis I found online again. But the main differences are essentially that Hammond is much more of a stubborn, not quite a villain, but you're definitely not rooting for him and you don't feel sorry for him. And at the end of the book, he kind of like he falls down a hill and then gets eaten by a bunch of the little uh, pygmy dinosaurs that eat the guy in the second Jurassic Park movie. That happens to Hammond in the book. He dies. Ah. Also, the lawyer, Gennaro, is portrayed wildly differently. Like, he's very heroic in the book. He actually survives the island. He helps uh, Grant go and Muldoon go, like, hunting the T-Rex. Like, he's very, very different. And even in this movie, I remember thinking at multiple points, like, Wow, they're really setting this guy up, Gennaro, in a way that is not fair to him. You you hear all about what's happened on this island, and at least one person has been eaten by a dinosaur, and so they send the lawyer to investigate. He's just doing his job, man, and I feel really bad for Gennaro in this movie. But he kind of gets his moment in the uh, in the spotlight when uh, Hammond is like, man, out of all the people in this room, only the blood-sucking lawyer is on my side. <laughs> and he goes, uh, and he goes thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's like, you can tell he's not sure if he was insulted or like truly thanked, but he's going to take it the better way. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I think that Gennaro, he doesn't get necessarily a fair shake because out of all the secondary characters, he is by far the most flat and one dimensional. Oh, for sure. All. For sure. And I, I do kind of wonder. If part of that is Spielberg's doing. So Spielberg had a very highly publicized divorce from his wife, Amy Irving, in 1989. Uh, it was one of the costliest divorces of all time. I think she got like $100 million uh, in that divorce. And something tells me that his resentment towards lawyers may have, may have sprung <laughs> from that. Uh, but yeah, and, and I think another area where you really see it, though, is with Hammond. They may they definitely soften him from the book. And I think one of the bigger criticisms of this movie was that he doesn't get his comeuppance and he doesn't really get held accountable for what happens on the island, or at least we don't see him get held accountable. They make him a very cuddly old man who is just kind of misguided. And I think that a lot of that criticism is fair, but Spielberg does these little breadcrumbs throughout the movie, too, where he doesn't let him off the hook. Like people are constantly calling him out. But there's this one little moment that I noticed this time, and it's when they're first watching the velociraptors feed on that like steer that they lower down into the cage. Mm-hmm. And it cuts back up to you see Grant and Sattler and Hammond and Grant's like watching them feed. And he has this it's almost like lustful look in his eye. Like I've been I've been waiting to see this my whole life. And you notice that Hammond isn't watching that. He's watching Grant watching yep. that. And it is the most unsettling part of the whole movie for me, because it's almost like he's he's like rubbing his hands in the background and going like, yes, yes, my plan is working. Like he's he is seducing Grant with this kind of bloodlust that he knows Grant wants to see as a guy who studies velociraptors. And so, like, there are those moments with Hammond's character that you can definitely tell he's not just 
a, a kindly old man who misjudged things. Like he definitely has some very serious character flaws. Well, he's he's built as a character who has a higher purpose in mind, and that higher purpose is to make money. And, you know, they, they give him a moment of redemption where he talks about, like, the flea circus that he started when he was a younger man and, and how he, he hated the fact that it was an illusion. And, you know, and it's and it's a brilliant moment because uh, Dr. Sattler throws it right back in his face that all of this control is an illusion. Right. But I, I think that I don't mind him being slightly redeemed by the end of the film because his story is not the primary thrust of this movie. The the idea of Dr. Grant changing as a human being from being basically a velociraptor, like crazy intelligent, just very laser focused on what he wants into like opening himself up to new things and even to the idea of being a parent like that transformation is the key to the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And so Hammond as a character is subservient to that theme. And so I, I don't mind him not necessarily getting his comeuppance. Totally agree. Yeah. And that's the thing. I keep coming back to this. I think this script is like perfect. And I don't know that it's the kind of script that would be taught in a screenwriting class. But the way they weave the themes throughout this movie is just utter perfection. Brad, we're running a little long on the front end here. So we're going to have to get into talking about that script in the back half of the episode. But we have an extra special treat today. Last season, we tried Barrel Seagrass. This season, we're trying Barrel Seagrass 16 year, and we have it poured out here in front of us. Brad, what do you say we tried this whiskey? Bob, I have been just so elated to get into this. <laughs> so let's do it, man. Lately, I've been finding myself pulling whiskeys off the shelf that are consistently unique, uh, ones that tell a good story every time I pop the cork, and I have to say that Doc Swinson's is absolutely top tier when it comes to a fascinating pour. What separates Doc Swinson's from the rest of the pack is their unrelenting goal of always letting the whiskey shine. No matter what whiskey comes through the front door at Doc's, their team of tasters will blend and finish it into something that is deliciously memorable. The beautiful thing about a good blended whiskey is that oftentimes, with proper care and attention, they turn into a whiskey that is truly greater than the sum of their parts. Whether you're trying their Alter Ego, Blender's Cut, or Exploratory Series, you are guaranteed to have a phenomenal experience with Doc Swinson's Whiskey. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. All right, today we are checking out Barrel Seagrass 16-Year, also known as Barrel Seagrass Gray Label. This is an ultra-premium release from Barrel Spirits, probably our favorite producer of whiskey at this point, Brad, I think it's fair to say. Easily, easily my favorite uh, whiskey producer. We made a new friend online, uh, and that friend is Weekly Whiskey. Find them on Instagram, and they also have a Discord channel, Weekly Whiskey. Fantastic. And also, they supplied us with this ultra-premium whiskey. We cannot say thank you enough to Weekly Whiskey for this. What we're trying here today, Brad, is a new release from Barrel. Just came out in 2022. It is a 16-year Canadian rye whiskey blend. Uh, so the regular seagrass was a blend of, like, Tennessee whiskey and Canadian. And this is just solely Canadian whiskey. So very similar to the Found North that we've had in the past on this show. 
It clocks in at 130.82 proof. It is a very high proof whiskey. I really cannot wait to get into this, Brad. Like the regular seagrass, it is finished in Martinique rum, Madeira, and apricot brandy casks. Remind the people, Brad, what did you think of the standard label seagrass? Oh, it, it was fine. <laughs> it, was, it was decent. Above, yeah. above average. Above, solid, above like average. B, B minus. Sure. <laughs> Bob, I gave it the first 50 out of 50 in film and whiskey podcast history. Yes. And you've said on multiple occasions, it is the best whiskey you have ever drunk. Easily the best whiskey I've ever had. And I like... As soon as I saw that this gray label was even an option to be drank, I was like, I need to have this right now. I moved around our whole whiskey schedule just to drink this with Jurassic Park because I was I like, know you did. I'll be damned if we drink something off the bottom <laughs> shelf. Like we usually like to be men of the people and democratize this. Listen, I know up front, not everybody can get barrel seagrass gray label, but indulge me for a change like this is my favorite movie i'm so excited and we might as well just share in this I, fantastic whiskey while we do it i thought you might have done our other favorite canadian whiskey uh canada mist canadian mist baby <laughs> i thought you i don't might know if i told you this. i i retried that like just to see and it was it was like unpalatable i could not <laughs> it was awful dude it was like that poop that uh, Ellie was <laughs> digging her way through. Oh, gosh, gross. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's jump into the nosing of this barrel seagrass. I'm going to go ahead and start today, Brad. This stuff is freaking fantastic. On the nose, the first thing I got was leather, which is not like a constant thing I get on rye. The rye grain came forward pretty heavily after that. And then the fruit started. At first, it was peach. And then it kind of morphed into like a biscuity. It was a peach cobbler for me. And then it was like a nice layer of almost like an earthiness, like a topsoil. Really, really beautiful. I mean, like this took me on a journey from like those deep, oaky, almost leathery notes all the way through to fruity and earthy on the back end. I'm going to give this a 9.5 on the nose. Yeah, I'm, I'm right back at it, Bob. This is a 10 out of 10 on the nose. Like there's there's a little bit of like a creamy caramel going on. There's a little bit of blueberry for me, some apricot, rye spice. And then at the back end, the longer I nose it, I'm with you, man. There's like almost like a leathery tobacco going on. I just I can't get over the complexity of this nose. And it almost comes across as a little more earthy than the other expression. I, I really love it a lot. Yeah, and it's the same when you get into the taste. What this does for me on the front end of the palate, though, is something that the regular seagrass didn't do, which was it immediately presents itself as sweet, and which is good because the alcohol really makes itself known after that. This is a very, very hot whiskey, but the first thing I got on this was strawberry, like ripe strawberry on the tip of my tongue, and that kind of morphed into those apricot, almost like a marmalade kind of note for me in the mid-palate. When you get to the mid palate, the rye spice really picks up and that heat from the alcohol starts to make itself known. And then on the back end, it's cream. And then it finished with some really nice, almost uh, like melon notes. I, I wrote down honeydew. That was like and, and kind of like when you get to the bottom of a piece of melon and you're like almost to the rind and it has that sort of almost earthiness to it. That's going on here on the back end of the palate for me, like in droves. That leather comes back. As you can tell, I'm just listing things, and that's a, good, that's a good sign because it says that this is really, really complex. It's hard to pin this down, 
and there's so much going on. Once again, I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10. Yeah, I think that this, for me, I, I agree with you. The sweetness up front is just delectable. Uh, for me, it was like a caramel cheesecake topped with strawberries, uh, like which I would never even imagine eating, but now I'm like desperate to try it. Uh, in the middle, I found almost like a nutty almond flavor going on. And then as we kind of got to the back of the palate, there was apricot, there was the rye spices starting to come through. And there was a little bit of almost like a baking spice, almost like a clove at the back end of the palate. Once again, it's a whiskey you have to sit with. And I think that the complexity is out of this world. I'll give it another 10 out of 10 on the taste. Now, I will say that the finish is where this drops off just slightly for me. And it's because the alcohol is really forward. Like it is it's an aggressive whiskey. And, and I don't mean that it's like too rough around the edges or that it tastes astringent. It's just really high proof whiskey. And it makes itself known right when you go to swallow. And for me, that affected the flavors that were left behind on the palate, you know, when it comes to the finish. So I do get a little bit on the finish here. It's definitely mouthwatering and it's not as complex as the rest of the tasting experience. The oak notes really start to come out here. You can tell that you're drinking a 16 year aged product. And I like that. It has that kind of dusty Rick House quality to it. But it's definitely for me the least complex part of the tasting. So I'm actually only going to give it an eight on finish. I'm actually right there with you, Bob. I think that. If there's one problem with this whiskey, it's the extra 10, 11 proof points that you get on the 16-year versus uh, their regular offering. Um, you still get all sorts of rye spice that's served up with oak and apricot on the finish, but it's so much more alcohol forward than its predecessor that I'm, I'm going to take a full point off. I, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 on the finish. All right. And that takes us to balance. Now, Again, this could be like a 10 out of 10 if, if we were even a little bit higher on the finish. Nose and taste are just phenomenal. And it's hard to ding the finish because it, you know, it suffers from how high proof it is. But it's not a bad finish. I do want to be fair, though, and I think I'll give it a 9 overall on balance as a result. I could probably go 9.5 if you wanted to try to convince me. Um, but because the finish was a step down from those other two, I think I'll give it a 9 on balance. Yeah, I'll give it a nine and a half on balance. I think it is incredibly well-rounded as a whiskey. There's just so much to love here. Uh, but that does bring us to our value score. Now, Bob, this is going to be getting into your luxury tier whiskeys. Well, before you right? get there, hold on. Let me, let's me let do this because we're going to drop a big number on you here in a minute. But if you want to know what we think of just what's in the bottle, listen to our first four categories. And if that's the case... Right now, Brad, I would be coming out to a 36 out of 40. What would you be coming out to? Uh, I am at a 38.5 yeah. out of 40. All right. So we are like well over the 90 out of 100 mark on this. This is just I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say just on a flavor standpoint, this is one of the top 10 whiskeys we've had on this podcast. Easily. Yeah, I, I would probably say top five. Yeah. It, I mean, and for me, this is better than the standard seagrass. Agreed? Um, I think I still like the original better. Okay. You know, I, I like the I like its approach more than I like this one. All right. That's fair. 
I tried to soften the blow a little bit because from what I've seen online, Brad, uh, on Barrel's website, this is retailing at $249.99. So it's $250 bottle of whiskey. The thing I do like about it is that I have not seen it jump up into like really high secondary pricing. Barrel seems to be doing a really good job of controlling the price on this. Now, there are a, a number of websites out there that are selling it for less than $250 right now, whether it's because they're having a sale or something like that. So I would say the average price I'm seeing is about $225. This is a super premium whiskey, right? Like you're not going to go out and drop $225 on a whiskey very often. And we've only yeah. had a few whiskeys on this show that have even approached this price point. I mean, we're talking in just in terms of retail, we're talking like this is selling at the same price that Van Winkle was supposed to be selling at. So at that price point, Brad, what kind of a score can you give it on value? I think that this is about $75 to $100 too expensive. Um, but it honestly, at a certain level, once you get past triple digits, at a, at a certain point, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. Like, you're not as worried about the quality of the product as you are about the prestige that the product will bring you, mm -hmm. if we're just being really honest. Um, and at a certain level, I've never had a whiskey over $100 that I didn't like. Yeah. So like the the quality is always going to be there when you get into the triple digits. The question is just like, do you want to drop the money to have a really phenomenal whiskey experience and the prestige of helping your friends have a really phenomenal whiskey experience? Yep. Uh, if that's the case for you, I'd give this a seven out of ten on value. I think I think that two hundred fifty dollars is a little too expensive. But what's too expensive at this point? I, yeah. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I don't want to be the guy that's defending a 250 price tag. But, you know, like it, it is a 16 year age stated product. This is not something we see very often. Barrel buys, you know, these lots of barrels and blends them together. And because they are limiting this to just the Canadian portion of things, they have a lot less that they can do with. You know, I mean, like there's there's only so many barrels they can make of this. Mm -hmm. And so it's a limited supply. It's super premium in terms of its age. I understand why they'd set it at this price point because the regular seagrass is already like $90. I do think it's too expensive. And I just am never going to say this $250 bottle of whiskey is a good value. And I think my default is just if you're going to spend $250 on a bottle of whiskey, this is the one to do it. Or if you're never, ever going to buy a bottle of whiskey that costs that much, like I'm not going to be able to convince you. So I'm going to stick at a five out of 10. Because you could really go either way on this. And that brings me out to a 41 out of 50, which is, I will say, lower than I actually think this whiskey deserves. But that value score is kind of dragging it down just a bit. Yeah, I'm coming to a 45.5 out of 50. And I'll say the same thing. Like the price here is mostly what pushes this score down. Um, I Like I said, I was at a 38.5 out of 40. This is like a nearly perfect whiskey experience that is only marred by the fact that it, it's a luxury tier item. Yeah. That brings us to an 86.5 out of 100 or a 43.25 out of 50. It will be hard to top this for best of the season, uh, but it could have been even higher if the value was there. Now, I mm -hmm. will say... If you're asking me, should I buy a bottle of this or should I buy you know, a shot of it at the bar? I would say, please bypass the bar portion of this because, you know, they're going to be selling this at like four times 
the markup. Yeah. You're going to be spending, I would say, conservatively 40 to $50 on a pour of this at the bar. Mm-hmm. And that is just absolutely not worth it. If you could <laughs> if you could get a bottle of it for 250 why would you spend $50 on a one to two ounce pour of this? Like, if you're going to try it, just put the money up and buy a bottle because it's freaking delicious and it's absolutely worth buying. Yeah, I, I would also say if you're looking to spend 40 or 50 bucks on a shot of it, go d- double that and buy a bottle of the regular seagrass. Well, there like, you go. It, like it's 90 bucks. Go do it, man. <laughs> All right, Brad, we have what might be our highest rated whiskey of the season that has yet to be seen. But uh, what's without a doubt is that we're watching the greatest film ever made right now, and that is Jurassic Park. So let's get back Ob- into obviously. It. <laughs> yeah, we need to, Bob. It demands it of us. Boom. Today's sponsor is a little bit of a departure from our usual area of expertise. And man, oh man, I was blown away by their product once we received it. I am talking about Manscaped. Now, if you're like me at all, you've probably seen the Manscaped ads and kind of wondered to yourself, like, do I really need like some sort of specialty trimmer to take care of my downstairs business? And I've just got to be honest, I was absolutely wrong. Uh, their trimmer is called the Lawnmower 4.0, and I gotta say, it is the Rolls Royce of trimmers. It's got a ceramic blade that reduces grooming mishaps, a wireless charging base, and an awesome flashlight that keeps things illuminated while you're working. And beyond all that, it's waterproof. This thing is really changing the game when it comes to below-the-belt hygiene. Now, this is just me talking about my experience, but this trimmer really is way beyond anything I've ever used to keep things neat and tidy. You can use our discount code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Head on over to manscaped.com and use code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off free shipping and you will be well on your way to hygiene heaven. All right, everybody, that was Barrel Seagrass Gray Label, a 16-year experience that I will be thinking about for a long time, Robert. Me too, man. This is so good, Brad. Dude, <laughs> this is one of those whiskeys. If you drink enough whiskey, you know this. There are certain whiskeys that like you get the taste on your palate like three hours later. You're like, ooh, there's that seagrass again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Like this is one of the few whiskeys that can do that. 100% man. I can't really think of a transition, Bob. I'm I'm all out of I'm fresh out of segues. <laughs> well, then let me let me take that for you, Brad. Have at it, man. It is time for Brad to hit us with two facts and a falsehood. This is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items as truths, and one of them is made up. And in reality, all of them might be made up because we're really relying on the internet to tell us the truth here. But Brad has found some bits of trivia and is going to try to stump me. Let's hear fact number one about Jurassic Park. Fact number one, the kitchen scene in this movie was originally written to be in the dinosaur incubation room, and Tim and Lexi were supposed to distract the velociraptors by throwing eggs at them, and, like, the baby dinosaurs were going to kind of, like, crack out of the eggs. Uh, That was ultimately cut from the film. (laughs) I I think wisely so. (laughs) Fact number two... After making this movie, Ariana Richards, uh, who played Lexi, developed a great interest in dinosaurs and assisted Jack Horner, who was the paleontologist advisor for the film and the inspiration for the character of Dr. Grant, on an actual dinosaur dig in Montana the following summer. Hmm. 
Uh, fact number three, the Triceratops dung did not actually smell at all. It was made of clay, mud, and straw and drizzled in honey and papayas so that the flies would swarm near it. That sounds true. I'll say that that's true. So it's a, it's the other two for me. You know, I read an article years back of like a where are they now? And it was about the girl who played Lex. And I can't remember what she's doing now. Maybe she's a paleontologist. I thought she became an artist of some sort. So I'm inclined to say that two is false, but the kitchen scene is in the book of Jurassic Park and Tim locks the Velociraptor in a freezer in that scene, too. So I I feel like one is very obviously false. But. I just know you too well, and I know that you play tricks on me, so. Oh, man, is it one or is it two? Uh, the eggs sound too ridiculous. I'm going to say one is the falsehood. I really wanted the uh, who wants to be a millionaire, <laughs> like, <laughs> like edgy, like thinking music to be playing. Yep. <laughs> Bob, you are 100 percent correct. That was the falsehood. You know, you, you had me go in there and then you took it one too far with the baby dinosaurs <laughs> hatching out of the eggs as they were being chucked. <laughs> that was that was where I was like, yeah, it's a falsehood. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I, I wondered if I went a little too far with that. Uh, <laughs> my new my new uh, practice with two facts and a falsehood is to write the falsehood before I look up any of the facts. There you go. Because it, it my brain gets like stuck in a rut of like what I've read. And so I just have to come at it fresh, man. All right. So I'm two and two on the season now. I'm back to 500 after an 0 and two start. That was really rough it, there for a while. It was. And I was I was pretty proud of myself. So uh, we're back at 500. I will just have to beat you next week. Bob. I, and I think you probably will. All right, Brad, I want to talk about this movie some more. We we've talked about the script. You have dove in on the themes a little bit before we get too deep into the themes, because I love it when we do this this deep analysis. I want to talk a little bit about this movie versus the other three Spielberg movies we've watched for this little mini series. And I really loved doing that exercise while watching this movie because it has so many similarities to all those other films. But I think part of the reason why I love this movie so much is that it just does them better. It takes the blueprint of all three of those films and takes the parts that work and it makes them work better. And a lot of times it makes them work better because of how the things are arranged in the script. So, like, for example, last week we were talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark and how that movie has kind of two villains, like the uh, the really villainous Nazi guy who you think is the bad guy, but Belloc is also kind of the bad guy, but they play two different roles in terms of how villainous they are. Spielberg does that here. He takes, you know, the idea of the the gigantic man-eating shark and turns that into the T-Rex. But the real villain of the movie for most of the film is the Velociraptors. Like, they don't really talk that much about the Tyrannosaurus Rex because you just understand it is gigantic and it will eat you. But the Velociraptors are like, they're your size, and they are vicious and they're smarter than you are. And maybe they learn how to open doors. <laughs> it's like, oh, OK, so you've got the giant brutish one and then you've got the ones to really be worried about, which are the velociraptors. And I just love that, uh, you know, among other things that Spielberg takes that kind of two villain approach and applies it here. Well, I think when you look at the four movies we chose, it really feels like Jurassic Park is the culmination 
of what Spielberg has been working on as a director since Jaws. And like he he pretty much perfected it with Jaws. But then you look at Close Encounters, you look at Raiders, you look at even E.T., and you see him kind of tinkering with this formula of what a summer blockbuster looks like. And he just hits it on the head with this film in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the next few like big films that he does, you have things like Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can. And it it feels like he just moves on to a new realm of directing yeah. that he didn't really touch on in his earlier years and so i i guess what i'm saying is i feel like jurassic park is like the culmination of the first act of spielberg's directing <laughs> like career. He, he finally got it out of his system and then he could, he could make other movies I, yeah i understand honestly. i understand that i will say that you you conveniently left out the the sequel the lost world from that list which is when he really was like, all right, I got to stop doing this. Let me make something else now. <laughs> I think maybe maybe that one that, accelerated his uh, turn into different types of movies. That that one was the uh, MJ on the Wizards era, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> all right. So before we compare it to Jaws, because I think that's where most of the comparisons are here. I did take one more note on how it reminded me of Raiders. And it, it is with kind of the themes. It deals with the themes of playing God and trying to wield something, a power that you don't understand. But what I like about what it does that Raiders didn't do is that it it really investigates the motives of the people doing the activity. Like no one in Indiana Jones is like, hey, are we doing the right thing by going into all these <laughs> cultures and stealing their stuff and you know, like they're just funding like basically a, a spy mission to go steal important artifacts. No one questions the motives. Whereas in this movie, at every point, the thing I love about it is that it's a non-functioning park. Like they're just in the testing phase and they're bringing in these people to consult and their consult. Their, their consultation is, hey, you're playing God. This is going to end really badly for you. And I love that it is like woven into the movie that you should not be doing these things and you will see it come to fruition if you continue to sow these things. Well, and you, and you have uh, Hammond just being flat out honest at the the only point of the movie he's truly honest is when he's completely by himself and uh, Jeff Goldblum is like tapping the camera and he just kind of like quietly to himself because, <laughs> by God, I hate I that I really man. hate that man. and it's just this honest moment of like you can tell that he does not give a rip what the people around him are telling him he is literally just trying to maneuver them into a place where they will agree with him so that he can move forward with his dream and ambition of you know giving children something real to look at instead of a instead of a flea circus and so I, I'm with you, man. The, Raiders of the Lost Ark is just a fun adventure movie. Jurassic Park is a horrifying survival movie that taps into the some of the deepest needs and desires of of the human spirit. And it's stunning. It's stunning. And it's a perfect segue into talking about Jaws, because, you know, for weeks now, I've been saying the anal- the analogous movie to Jaws is Jurassic Park. And I think it's a generational thing. I think if you grew up in one area, you probably like Jaws better. I happen to like Jurassic Park better. And I think Jurassic Park is ultimately the better constructed movie. And that's where I really want to focus here, because 
in our review of Jaws, we talk about how it is very cleanly split in two. And it starts as a horror movie and it ends as kind of an adventure movie. They're hunting down this shark. They're bonding on the open seas. And of course, like the, the end is horrifying. But I would say that the majority of the first half of the movie is like a, a slasher film. The second half of the movie is an adventure seafaring kind of movie. This inverts that. And I think it's better for it. It starts out as an adventure movie. Like you're aware of some of the dangers, but you're caught up in the awe and the wonder of it all. And you really feel the sense as they fly past that waterfall that they're going to this exotic location. And you see the, uh, the, the, the emotion on their faces as they encounter these creatures for the first time. And then when everything turns bad and shit hits the fan, it really hits the fan and everything falls apart. And this movie is freaking terrifying. Like we don't talk about how effective it is as a horror movie. But I think that the inversion of the structure of Jaws ultimately makes this movie better than Jaws. I'm completely with you, man. I think that the three-part structure to this movie, where you have kind of the introduction of the characters and the introduction of the dinosaurs into the, I would say the middle phase of the movie is once the kids get introduced and the park isn't living up to its expectations into the final part of the film when when everybody is separated, Dr. Grant and the kids are together and Ellie and Malcolm and Hammond are all together. Like you have this culmination of growth for for not only Dr. Grant, but for Hammond as well, that just gives you this really beautifully tied up bundle of a movie there's nothing wrong with it, Bob. No, I, there's not. Like when you say that the, it's a perfect screenplay, I often like scoff in my in my brain. I'm like, ah, I don't know if movies can really have a perfect screenplay. This one is it, man. Yeah. I, and the exposition even like I'm thinking of the scene at the beginning where that kid is like, that doesn't look scary to me. It's just a big turkey. <laughs> oh, can, can I just say, why the heck is that kid? I don't understand. What's he doing on the dig? Like, (laughs) who brought him along? But but what they have Alan Grant say to him after that is so good because it sets up the idea of the Velociraptor as a pack hunter and as something that will outsmart you. It sets up the dinosaurs as just, you know, inherently terrifying. And it also sets up that he's horrible with kids. And like it does all of those things in that one little monologue. And it's super entertaining to watch the way that Spielberg films it. It's just it's the perfect combination of director and script. And, you know, going back to Jaws, you were talking about how this movie, the the arc of the protagonists works a lot better. And I agree with that because you get all that bonding on the front end of the movie so that when forces pull them apart in the second half of the movie, you want them to reunite. But I also think that it really makes the arc of the villains in this movie a lot stronger as well. Like in Jaws, the the mayor is to blame, but the mayor also doesn't really understand what we're dealing with here. You know, Quint kind of says it's a great white, but uh, the mayor doesn't understand how big of a fish they're really talking about. And in this movie, Hammond understands exactly what he's doing and he just doesn't care. And I think that really adds to... Uh, like the oh factor of this movie that that human beings are not just kind of playing God, but they're doing it with an arrogance and a uh, a disregard for any morals that is like really staggering. And I, th- I think that, again, the structure of the movie benefits that a lot. Yeah, it's incredible. By the end of the film, y- like 
you're not sure if there's really a villain in this movie, and yet you're pretty sure that Hammond's a bad guy. <laughs> and and I love that. Like even in the final shot of Hammond that you get, he is like gazing longingly at the amber on the top of his his little you know walking stick that has the mosquito in it, mm-hmm. and you can tell that he's like mourning the loss of this incredibly dangerous ecosystem that he has created. And so you're kind of left with him in a place of like, man, is he going to try to do this again? Like, you know, he said that he won't, but it almost felt like a throwaway line when, when Dr. Grant tells him that, you know, I I don't endorse your park. And he says, Oh, neither do I. And you're like, well, I, I don't know. Is, is he going to go back and try this again? Right. And that's like the perfect ending place for him as a character. Well, I think it's a perfect ending place for us too, Brad. I uh, I threatened to make this a two hour episode when we first started Bob, recording I, tonight. I was gonna say <laughs> this is your movie, man. Is there is there anywhere else you want to go? Is there anything else you just want to spiel about? I can go make a sandwich. Uh, you can riff here by yourself for a while. Like, what do you want to do? You know what? One of these days, I'm a hundred percent serious. I want us to do like a watch along with a movie and record our commentary as the movie happens, because I feel like I could do that for Jurassic Park. I could go two hours on Jurassic Park because we haven't talked about the camera work like the Spielberg oneers in this movie. I feel like every scene has at least three of them. They're not as long and dramatic as they are in other movies. But there's a scene, you know, there's this scene where Ellie is digging around in the poop and it starts with a shot of. Uh, Goldblum like swaggering up and you don't know what he's swaggering up to and it pulls back and it's a two shot and it's him and poop and then, and then he remarks <laughs> on how big the pile of poop is and then the camera pulls back farther and reveals another pile of poop with Ellie's hand inside of it and then it pulls farther back and re- you know like it has all of them in the frame at the same time it's it's like four shots in one and they do it over the span of 10 seconds so you're not really thinking about it but Spielberg does that literally in every scene of this movie. And I think that when it comes to the way he moves the camera, I don't know that it's ever been done better or more economically than he does it in this movie. Like I could go on and on talking about the direction in this film. And for me, it's between this and and saving private Ryan. This might be the best directed movie he's ever done. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I realized with that poop scene is that Spielberg has a weird thing for like piles of brown stuff because that that pile of poop looked shockingly similar to the mound that Richard Dreyfus makes in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I thought you were going to compare it to E.T. because I'm pretty sure you you said <laughs> E.T. looked like a turd when we reviewed that movie. <laughs> hey, man, yeah, I'll just let you make the joke oh, for me. Oh, my gosh. All right. One more thing I'll say and then we'll give our final scores. Spielberg is just working his magic here, obviously, but there's this one little moment that I really loved, and it's when they take the tour at the beginning of the film through Jurassic Park, and you've got Hammond interacting with himself on screen, and they're, you know, he's talking to himself and doing the scripted bit. And meanwhile, they keep cutting to Ellie and Alan and Ian in the audience, and they're not paying attention at all. And they're asking each other the important questions, and Hammond keeps like shushing them and trying to remind them of the etiquette of watching a movie. And I just love how it's such a like a meta comment on what's actually happening in the movie. Like you've just seen a dinosaur for the first time as a viewer of the movie. And in your own mind, as you watch it, you're like, 
How the hell did they do that? Where did the DNA come from? How can you get DNA from something that's been extinct? And now this guy Spielberg wants me to sit here and watch this tour happen. And so I love that the three of them are like stand-ins for the audience. And Spielberg is basically saying, hey, I know you've got really important questions. Don't zone out now because I've got you. And I just I just love that he's so aware of the pacing of his own movie that he uses that scene almost as like a winking joke to the audience. Like, hey, stay with me. And I, I love that that scene. And, and this is like a note that I took during the movie in my brain because I don't actually take notes uh, that that is hands down one of the most plausible, like expositional explanations of of a fantasy element of a movie mm-hmm. that I have ever heard in my life because I like I know that it is you're not able to do what the scientists say they can do in that to clone things from the ancient realm but I will be just flabbergasted if you told me that that wasn't true oh my gosh like, it's it's so like and that's the thing when we talk about world building on this podcast like it doesn't have to be legit like it doesn't have to be scientifically mm-hmm. foolproof and airtight it just has to make sense for what they're trying to do in the world of the movie and i don't know if it's ever been done better than this like they have this little cartoon and this southern guy talking about and then we put it into the dinosaur and he says it just <laughs> like that and i'm like hell yeah that's what you do you get it out of you get it out of the freaking sap of course you do and i'm Obviously. in it's all the scientific explanation i need so, so much so that like 10 minutes later when they're like, yeah, all the dinosaurs are female and Ian's like, doesn't matter. They're still going to breed. I'm like, yep, they are. I, yep. We know this. This is science. <laughs> like, well, and even even like this was a question I had for the first time uh, when they first get onto the island and Ellie is holding that leaf and she's like, how can you have this? This plant is extinct. Like later on, I'm like. Well, I know a mosquito didn't drink the blood of the plant <laughs> and they cloned the plant. But like this is like my, you know, 17th time seeing the movie before I thought of that. So they do kind of make Ellie into the MacGyver of the whole movie, though. Like she's a, a, she's bit, a botanist, yeah. but then she's like, yeah, I delivered morphine to Ian. Like she's she's taking she's nursing wounds. <laughs> She knows all about uh, um, a birthing triceratops. Yeah, like <laughs> dilated pupils. I'm like, what what plants are you studying, lady? <laughs> all right, man, let's get to it. Final scores. This is the easiest 10 out of 10 I will ever give. I have not been this excited to talk about a movie on this podcast since Citizen Kane, because you'd never seen it. And I really wanted to know what you thought of Citizen Kane. But I'm more excited to talk about this because I love this movie. It absolutely holds up. I was really worried that I was going to come in here and have to say it's a 9.5. But I'll tell you what, when the the ceiling is above a 10 and the floor is a 9.5, it's a damn good movie. And it's a 10 out of 10. Yeah, Bob, I really wanted to come in here and give it like a nine or nine and a half just to tweak you. <laughs> but like Spielberg just worked his magic, as you said. This movie is easily a 10 out of 10, probably one of the best 10s out of 10s that we have given any movie in the history of this show. It it just works, man. And it's a popcorn movie, and it's absolutely one of the best movies ever made. I don't like it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, un film for me to love it. Like it, it's cinema for what it is. And it's a perfectly made movie. 
I don't want to hear it if you disagree with me. I'll just say that this week. Usually, <laughs> usually we're like, hey, write in and tell us how we're wrong. No, we're not wrong. This movie's perfect. And if you don't agree, then you need to just watch it again because it's so freaking good. Uh, but if you'd like to stroke our ego and agree with us, you can reach out to us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and newly on TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So jump on there. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. And Bob, I will say we we never really do this. I think what I would recommend Film and Whiskey Nation to do is if you if you're not fully with us on Jurassic Park, if you're in a place where you're like, yeah, it's, it's great, it's fun, but it's not that deep or interesting. It's just a fun you know action adventure movie. There's a few YouTube videos that, Bob, you sent me. I think we should link a few of them at the bottom of our show notes this week. Absolutely. Be- because there, there's some people who have gone really in-depth into examining the subtext of what's going on here, into examining the horror of it all. And uh, I think I think we should throw it to them um, if if you really want to dive deep on Jurassic Park and why it is great. Next week, we're going to start a miniseries on that other great American director, Martin Scorsese. Brad, once again, I'm going to let you determine the order of our three films. We've got Taxi Driver from 1976, Raging Bull from 1980, and Silence from 2016. Bob, I I really enjoyed going in chronological order with Spielberg. So I, I think I'm going to say we should do it in the order that you just mentioned. Let's do it, man. That means we'll be back next Monday asking each other you talking to me while we review taxi driver and so we will be back next week with that masterpiece but until then i'm bob book i'm brad g and we'll see you next time 